Welcome to the No Neutral Moments Podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and it's my pleasure to discuss, to explore, and maybe even to discover what it means for each one of us to live our lives fully engaged, to challenge each one of us to be fully aware, and completely expecting to engage to the fullest everything we've been designed, called, and gifted to be. So with all this in mind, let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get engaged. Hello there, and welcome back to No Neutral Moments. It's great to have you alongside of me with this journey. Thank you for taking the time to tune in. Man, really just appreciate so many of you out there listening and passing on the podcast to your friends and neighbors, associates, coworkers, whoever it might be. Thank you so much. And um, let's get right into it. This is going to be the um, third installment of me just reviewing lessons from the past year of 2022, even though we're already almost to March of 2023. In fact, by the time you listen to this, it will be March. Um, and we'll throw in a few editorial comments as well. Um, before I get through with this list, we may have another episode, but we'll see. And um, as we're trying to just do two episodes a month, it takes us a little longer to get through a series than we might have expected, but thank you for your patience and thank you for your commitment to add this to your podcast listening, to your library, and so on and so forth. So let's just uh, get right into it. I've got my uh, bottle of water here next to me, no fancy beverages this time, and uh, let's get into it. And a couple of these are going to be some culture observations, and and then... Um, the last couple are going to be sort of some life lessons I want to review uh, related to some broader subjects. But um, I have noticed as I've been working with companies and watching companies, not just in the consulting career that I have uh, been in, but really over the last 30 years and then just paying attention to the culture of business, uh, I wrote this one down because it's become a question that I have asked a number of um a number of leaders when we get into um, strategy sessions, uh, if they ask this question, and I think it's important for leaders at all levels, whether it's the C-suite, the board of directors, a group of managers, uh, to be asking the following question. And that is very simply, how does the competition kill us? And you can ask that question a couple of different ways. Uh, You can say, how does our um, competition kill us? You can say, how does a new uh, entrant into the market kill us? It's a very aggressive question. I understand that. I have learned over the years that I am um, perceived sometimes to be a little more aggressive in language and behavior than others might be, but I just think you need to get aggressive with the question. And and I have discovered over time that many people do not want to ask the question and answer it honestly for a couple of reasons. The first reason they don't want to ask the, the question, how does the competition kill us? And by the way, when you ask this question, you have to surround yourself with people who will answer the questions, the question that are perhaps not the same people you have been meeting with for a prolonged period of time. You might have to bring people in from other departments or other areas or to use a phrase who are lower in the organization, so to speak. But it goes to one of the reasons why we don't like to ask the question, especially if we are in leadership, because that question has a tendency to um, to expose how our leadership has made the organization vulnerable, and we may not be quite sure how to fix it. In other words, you, you get settled into a way of doing business, you've been successful, you think it's the right way to do business, but you don't ask yourself 
the hard question. How does the competition kill us? And in industry, that's what competition seeks to do, just like you used to do in your organization, seeking to find ways to bury the competition. Or if you're a new entrant into a market, you see what the competition is doing and you find a way to destroy the competition. In many ways, our success can be our worst enemy because we forget the question and and we forget how to think competitively and, and we really just kind of think in our own little box. And so be careful what it exposes if you have a resistance to asking this question. Is it exposing something in your leadership life that you, you don't want to be that vulnerable? And the other thing is, is will you encourage people to answer you correctly by the display of your own vulnerability? And one way to do that is to start making a list of how you think the competition could kill you. And, and the second reason so many people don't want to deal with this question is because of what it will demand of them with the hard work that's going to be required to make the adjustments to address the answer or answers to the question of how does the competition kill us? Um, I think this is, you know, as I've noticed over time, this is oftentimes where coaching and consulting can be at its best because I'm at my best when I do not necessarily know how to run your business. You know, like uh, I, I don't understand the ins and outs of your business, but I can oftentimes step into a business with a very neutral viewpoint, but a viewpoint that's been informed by decades of life and decades of history. And sometimes what I can see you often miss or what another consultant or coach can see is what you miss because you're in it and you just don't see it. Uh, the way others from the outside see it. Back in the day, um, and, and I say back in the day, you've probably heard this before if you've ever been in the retail world, and we used to um, talk about this in the church world as well, is uh, a lot of retail businesses have secret shoppers. And these people are who they hire to go into a business and act like customers and interact with the staff. And then they write a report on what they see. And oftentimes these reports really just point to um, oversight out of habit. And um, I know at times in the church world, uh, especially if you're in a larger church organization like I was involved in, you know, we would call a friend from another city or another community that no one would know and ask them to just be a visitor and to go observe. And especially if they had kids to check their kids into the kids area and then write a report because you oftentimes just get comfortable in the way you do things. I've heard it said by some leadership gurus that you should work on your strengths and not your weaknesses because of various reasons. But I think this is an exercise where you really need to try to find a way to expose your weaknesses and to expose your Achilles heel. So it goes back to this question, how does the competition kill us? All great sports, athletics, uh, they all want to know where their weaknesses are because the competition will exploit your weaknesses most of the time. And so it's a great question, and it's a question that I find a lot of resistance to, but I think it uh, is a very competitive question. So there you go. That's the first one in this episode, just some lessons from 2022. And, and I would say that this lesson... It really goes back to just decades of observation. We just don't like it. We don't even like it personally when we think about, okay, what could kill me? What about my daily routine? What about my diet? What about my exercise or lack thereof? We don't like to think about what would bring us down, but that gives us a battle plan for how we can get better. 
This next one is sort of a pet peeve of mine. Um, it, it became something that uh, I observed in a uh, really the first president of a company that I worked for that I saw uh, him not do this, which I thought was really awesome. And that was a uh, a president of our company that didn't take advantage of perks and privileges that his station of life could take. He just um, really did life with most of us the way we did life, even though he was ridiculously successful and a great business person and became a great friend and a great mentor. But I saw him rarely... Um, take advantage of perks and privileges that he could have had on his own and found a way many times to allow all of us to experience some form of perk or privilege that we earn together as a team. Uh, It's amazing how people in our organizations uh, pay attention to what we do as leaders in the small things. Uh, You know, one of the things that that I tried to do years ago um, was I never, well, let me put it, let me put it in the positive. I always parked as far away from the front door as I could. Um, I wanted other people to park up close. I never allowed uh, my name to be on a parking space. I never allowed people's titles to be on business cards or on their doors of their offices. And I just wanted our organization, the higher you went, and I wanted myself, the higher I went, to really try to um, minimize uh, how people saw you or or what kind of stage or pedestal they put you on. And really what I wanted them to see was a servant leader mentality, uh, even um, you know, to that simple thing of parking as far away as possible or you know, going to the break room and, and hanging out with folks and doing whatever I had to do. I think one of the greatest habits a successful leader can cultivate is to not look or appear successful. It's kind of the Sam Walton story. If you know who Sam Walton is, the founder of Walmart, uh, the stories are often told of the old trucks he used to drive and how he would go to stores and just dress like a normal individual and nobody would know who he was. And then he'd just want to see how the business was and how the business was treating simple people. I found the weakest leaders are those who want to appear the most successful, and oftentimes the best leaders and the most successful leaders are those you have to work hard to identify as such. But just try to aggressively find ways to not exalt your position or your success above others. At the very least, um, do the simple things. Walk the furthest. Um You'll have to figure out what the fill in the blank is for you to just be among the normal people. And also understanding that some people are in positions because of safety or security where they have to have certain things around them, but that's a rare person. So I would just remind you, the higher you um, achieve in your organization, uh, be aware of how that is perceived and how that can kill a culture if you take advantage of those perks and privileges and really just find a way for people to be surprised um, when they see your behavior, to be surprised at how normal you might be or or how um, simple you might be. It goes a long ways, especially uh, the larger your organization uh, seems to be. It goes a long ways in communicating the value of every person. I kind of always use athletic examples, but when you pay attention to sports, you will oftentimes hear stories about the greatest players on a team are usually those who are in the gym first and out of the gym last and who are doing the simple things like picking up the trash and people see them do that. 
a simple story from my past years ago. I was uh, usually made it a habit to be to uh, the church when I was pastoring very, very early. Very few people were there as early as I was, except those who were um, having to prepare for worship or various things. And I would just take a walk through all the different hallways, up and down the stairs, and look at things. And I was walking downstairs one day, and there was a picture hanging um, right in front of me on the first floor as I'm coming down the flight of stairs, and I noticed it was a little bit crooked. And and so, again, this was early. There were, there wasn't anybody in the building, and I just walked downstairs, walked straight towards that picture, and just straightened it. Well, I didn't know there was a gentleman to my right who was sitting on one of the benches in the lobby area, and as I turned around and saw him, he said, you know what I respect? I respect the fact that you take care of the little things. And so, Again, it's just an issue that people are watching and paying attention, and so be aware of that as a leader. So there's number two. That first first point of this episode is asking yourself the hard question, how does the competition kill us? The second point was the higher you go as a leader, try to see um, how much effort you can put into just, to put it another way, just being normal and uh, being one of the people, so to speak. Now, to turn the corner a little bit to something a little more spiritual or soulish, just an observation from 2022 and even before that, you know, the longer you live, the more interactions you're going to have with people and the more you're going to find people can um, offend you and hurt you and do some things that are damaging to you and to others around you. And I have had to remind myself that forgiveness is something that I have the free choice to give whether or not that person deserves it or recognizes it or whatever the case might be. And even in offering forgiveness, that someone may not even know that I am offering them, uh, I'm going to learn some lessons about myself. And if I'm humble about it, I'm going to learn some of the mistakes I made that might have led to an offense. And the one thing I want to do is give out forgiveness so that I don't harbor bitterness. And even when I talk about forgiveness, uh, years ago I told people, don't drop forgiveness grenades into people's lives. Sometimes people offend us, and sometimes people hurt us, and they don't mean to, but they just have no idea that their lifestyle is hurting us and hurting people around us. They're literally not cognizant of the fact that they have hurt you, or they have hurt me, or they have hurt us. And it's usually not beneficial to walk up to that person out of the cold and say, I just want you to let you know that you greatly offended me, but now I'm forgiving you because they're probably not aware of it. And that's probably going to open up something you don't even want to open up. It's a whole nother discussion. But I just was reminded over the last year and several years that it is my responsibility, regardless of what someone else does, to freely offer and to freely give forgiveness. And more than anything, to sort of, um, in the words of a great Disney musical, Frozen, It's up to me to let it go and to not let bitterness rest in my heart towards people, towards organizations, or towards circumstances. There's a passage in the Bible that says, do not let a root of bitterness spring up, or kind of really the way to see that is to take root and then spring up. And it goes on to say that that root of bitterness will cause trouble, and by by it, many will be defiled. And Really, the meaning of that passage is this this reality that if I let things fester inside of me, they will sour inside of me, and there's a really, really strong chance that sometime later in life it will spew out of me, and it will hurt multiple people because bitterness is 
is how that happens. A lack of forgiveness leads to a root of bitterness that leads to a festering soul. And it's sort of like a festering sore you cannot control. I know that's really gross, but it just it just all of a sudden starts oozing out of your life and hurts people around you. And and to add to that, um, if you're really competitive uh, in the way that I am, sometimes your competitive nature wants to get revenge. And it's very important in our lives, in our souls, and in our minds, and in our daily life that we do not pursue revenge, because really, revenge is just getting ahead of the wickedness of bitterness, and all of it's still going to yield the same result. People are going to be damaged around us. I have really um, found no more, well, that's not true. I have found one of the most freeing things to do is to... uh, heed the advice of a good friend of mine years ago who told me, you just must choose to not be offended in your life and to freely give forgiveness, whether it's deserved or not, because it just offloads that burden from you having to carry it. I know as a third and kind of quick point in this podcast, that's pretty deep. Um, It's pretty significant, especially when we consider some of the things that can be done to people and some of the harm that can be done to people and Some of these issues might require professional counseling to work through, uh, but one of the most life-giving things we can do is try to find a way to let it go, and I'm not trying to wear out the Disney movie, but to really let people go and to let it go so I can go on living my life and blessing others. So um, there you go. That's the third point. And I think that's nine. That's the 11th uh, observation so far from 2022. So let's go on to the next one. And this one you've heard me speak about, but I, I was reminded of it again and the power of it again uh, throughout this past year in all of my coaching and consulting and even in the little bit of counseling I do. And that is very simply the five core needs that you have heard me mention from Dr. Kathy Cook for years now. Uh, the way I wrote it in my notes, they are still the five core needs and you ignore them at your peril. If you have not heard me speak about the five core needs, or you need a refresher in the five core needs, I would start that by saying, get a picture of a triangle or a pyramid in your mind. And then you go to the very bottom, which would be the base of the pyramid or the triangle. And you think of the word security, which is a core need and the most important fundamental core need in our lives. And that core need asks the question all the time, who can I trust? That even has a reflection back to the previous point about forgiveness, because sometimes our trust is busted. We lose trust in people, but in our our entire lives and in our careers and in all the settings we find ourselves in, we're always asking this question of who we can trust. It's fundamental. People in your organization are asking, can I trust managers? Can I trust leaders? Can I trust executives? Uh, At all levels, people are asking the question, and they're not asking it verbally. They're asking it inside, and they're observing to see who can they trust. And the second thing that is a core need, or the second core need as you make your way up the pyramid, is identity. Who am I? We all want to know who we are. We want to know what we're made of and what constitutes who we are, and do people understand who we are? Really deep down in that need... We want people to know us. We want people to understand who we are and not just observe us as someone they run into. So security, the very first core need is who can I trust? And the next is identity. And by the way, the fewer and fewer people we trust 
if we even get to a place where we don't trust people, then we don't have the right people speaking truth into our identity. And, and as Proverbs twenty seven seventeen says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We need people that we trust speaking into our identity. So five core needs, security, who can I trust? Identity, who am I? And keep going up the pyramid because the next one is belonging. And that is who wants me? Who really wants to be with me? Who wants to do life with me? I love the way Dr. Kathy Cook says this is not the same as saying who needs me. I've used the example a million times, so I'm going to use it now for the millionth and first time, and that is I'm not very good at plumbing. And so if a hot water heater goes out in my house or if I have some plumbing issues in my house, I may try my hand at it for a minute, but what I need is a plumber to come over to my house and fix the problem. I don't want the plumber to be at my house. I never wanted the plumber to be at my house, but I have an issue that needs fixed, so I I need them at my house. There's a difference. I may want them to stay because I like them, and maybe we can sit around and have a cup of coffee. That's probably going to be a rare occasion, but there is a huge difference between needing and wanting. And where this is particularly important is when we're trying to coach people and encourage people and lead people, we oftentimes say that we need somebody to do something for us. But really, the more personal um, word is, I want you to do something for me. When we used to be in the job of recruiting volunteers in the church world, one of the things we tried to, tried to avoid was we need you to volunteer. Because really, that didn't give much value to it. We wanted them to come be a part of what we were doing. And so you have security, which is who can I trust? And remember, if security is out of whack, your identity is going to be out of whack. And if your identity is out of whack, your sense of belonging is going to be out of whack as well. But then as you keep going up the pyramid, you have security, identity, belonging. And then you have this core need that we all need of purpose. And purpose is always asking the question, what am I here for? What is my purpose on earth? And we want to live for something bigger than just ourselves. The immature among us want to live only for ourselves, but the more we mature and grow in what it means to be a human, we want to know what our larger purpose is. But you'll never discover your purpose if security and identity and belonging are out of whack. That's why those things have to be worked on. And then as you make your way up the pyramid, you get to the very top, and it's not the least important, but it's really the smallest. And so I guess you could say in some respects, it's the least important need because it can change often. And that is the core need of competence. It's, it's what I do well. What are my talents? What are my gifts? What are my abilities? Now, I'll tell you one more thing about five core needs. And I've learned this over time, just observing culture and, and work and, and generations. I told you to form this pyramid in your mind, and so in your mind's eye, you have you have this pyramid, and you have security at the bottom, and then you have identity, and then you have belonging, and then you have purpose, and then you have competence. If those are in the right order and functioning well and healthy, you'd be amazed at the value and the worth and the joy of your life. But I have also noticed generationally that the generation that was basically the post-World War II generation and I would say even through the baby, baby boomers and into the 90s, flipped the five core needs on its head. So now you've got this picture of this pyramid, just let it turn upside down. And now the pyramid is upside down and the smallest, tiniest point of the pyramid is on the ground. And so it's kind of balancing there because competence is now at the bottom. 
there have been generations of workers in the United States, especially, who built their security, who they trusted, on their competence. In other words, everything was wrapped up in who they were as a professional. It's where we get this phrase, you know, when we meet people for the first time, we say, what do you do? The very first discussion we get into is their competence. And their competence, or put it this way, their profession gives them their purpose. And so we're working backwards through the pyramid. And so their, their profession, their competence gives them their purpose. Their purpose gives them their belonging to an organization or a company. This place or organization they belong to gives them their identity, who they are. In fact, that's all they identify with is who they are and what they do professionally. And then it gives them their security. This is what they trust for life. The problem is competence and careers can change, can disappear, can go away. And if that's what you have rooted the core needs of your life in, once that competence goes away, your purpose goes away, your identity, your belonging goes away, your identity goes away, and your security goes away because you have flipped the pyramid of needs in a way they were never intended to be. I think that the younger generations, and I would say that's primarily those in their late 20s and in their 30s, are actually challenging the way generations have created life. And they're saying, wait a minute, my competence is not my purpose. My abilities are not my purpose. In fact, I want to know who I can trust in the marketplace. I want to know who I can trust in the workplace. I want to know what leaders I can trust. And I want to know if those leaders know who I am. And I want to know if those leaders want me. And I want to know if those leaders will display a bigger and larger purpose than just the company. And then I can move around in my job and profession because my competences can change and grow. It's a lot to think about, but I hope you will give it some thought. The five core needs are still the five core needs, and you really do ignore them at your peril. And to get a little bit biblical for you, I could take you to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent deceives Eve, and I can show you how the enemy attacked Eve, so to speak, at these core needs. He attacked trust, he attacked identity and belonging, purpose, and even competence. And so it is an area in which we are attacked. So something that became even more real to me over last year and even years leading up to that was these five core needs are really critically important and you're going to ignore them at your peril. I'll give you one more. Uh, We're 26 minutes in, try to keep these things to a half hour. This might go a little bit over. But all um, coaches and consultants and organizations have tests they give you, whether it's an Enneagram, a DISC test, a 360. Everybody gives you all these tests, you know. And I have one that I was introduced to decades ago, again, by Dr. Kathy Cook. And it's one that most people have not heard of or seen. It's very hard to uh, find it for what it's worth on the web because there's really nothing digitized for it, but it's called Mind Styles by Dr. Anthony Gregoric. And I'm very, um, I guess, committed to Dr. Anthony Gregoric's work. And Mind Styles is just a part of my practice. Most of my clients that I meet with, not every, but most, I will begin with a Mind Styles assessment. And the Mind Styles assessment will put you uh, in a position where you're going to understand all four kind of functions of the mind. Uh, You have all four, but you usually are dominant in one or two. And those four mind styles are concrete, sequential, 
abstract sequential, abstract random, and concrete random. And, and in that same order, I'll just go through it. The things that characterize those who are highly concrete sequential are folks who want to follow the steps. They want to know what the steps are. They're list makers. They can't help it. They are instruction readers. Um, they really need time to understand the process and to understand the steps. And so those, of your, those are your concrete sequentials. Things are very black and white to them. That's the concrete. But their lives and their minds, they cannot help but be very sequential. They make lists even when they don't have to make a list. And they'll even make a list of things they've already done so they can check off the things they've already done on the list. And that's a concrete sequential. And then you have, and by the way, that's about 40% of the population. And then you have abstract sequentials, and, and everything's not real black and white for the abstract. It's a little more emotional. It's a little more sensory. It's a little more perceptive. You know, you may ask an abstract sequential person or an abstract random person what color uh, a certain paint is, and they may see three or four colors where the concrete person may say, no, it's just blue. I don't see any other colors. That's the difference. But the abstract sequential is not quite as, as you just noticed, concrete. But they are also the same in being very sequential. They want to know the steps. They want to know what rules to follow. But at the same time, abstract sequentials are great researchers. They're very curious. In fact, the phrase we use for abstract sequentials is their battle cry is, what else could it be? They're, they're, they are slow to settle on the answer because they're afraid they might be leaving some detail out. And, and so there's a little bit of difference between that concrete sequential and abstract sequential. Moving on to the third mind style is the abstract random. Again, abstract, not quite black and white, a little more feeling and intuitive, but at the same time, very random and not so concerned about the lists or the order um, that is going to occur or needs to occur. Abstract randoms um, are usually feel first, think second. And by the way, backing up to the abstract sequential, that's about 10% of any population. And then you get back to where we were, which is the abstract random. That's about 25% of any population really do feel first. They're the partiers in the group. Life's a party. Um, if you were to ask a concrete sequential or even an abstract sequential what thinking is and what thinking requires, they would say something like thinking is essential and thinking just happens. They would also tell you feeling is difficult and feeling requires work. The abstract sequential would answer those same questions radically different, and I've seen this from ages 18 to 90. It doesn't change. The abstract sequential is going to tell you that thinking oftentimes takes a lot of work and it's very exhausting and it doesn't occur just all the time. But they would also tell you that feeling is essential and doesn't require any work. It just happens. So you can already begin to see some of those differences. This is usually about a two-day seminar. I'm wrapping up for you in about 10 minutes. So the last mind style is the one I'm most dominant in which is the concrete random, the last 25% of the population. Here you see concrete again, which is black and white. It is what it is, but random in that they really value change, challenge, and choice. They want to get after it. They want to go for it. They're not necessarily concerned about the steps. Let's just go. These are usually high visionaries and, um, and they are very driven. Not that any of the mind styles aren't driven, but this is sort of the go get them. 
This is, uh, in some respects, the shoot, ready, aim group. And, and so there's your mind styles. And, and again, you have all four mind styles in your makeup as a person, but you're going to lean one towards the other usually. And sometimes you'll have a combination. My combination is concrete random first and then concrete sequential second and then abstract random, and then abstract sequential. And so if you want to find out more about that, if I can help you with that, please drop me an email at Patrick at Peyton Group LLC. That as well as um, five core needs, I'll be happy to help you with as well. But that's probably enough. We're 32 minutes into this episode. And so again, just observations and things that I've learned. And, and just to review quickly, don't be afraid to ask the question, how does the competition kill us? Uh, be a leader. The second thing, be a leader who tries to find a way to minimize the perception of you taking advantage of perks. The phrase I would just put out there that may not apply to you is park the furthest away and walk the furthest and uh, do the things that surprise people um, because it's what normal people do. And uh, you want to keep working on that discipline. The next one is making sure you're giving away forgiveness as often as you have to and even more than you think you need to and protecting your life against bitterness The fourth thing is the five core needs. They are still the five core needs and you ignore them at your peril, security, identity, belonging, purpose, and contentment. And then mind styles, they work. And for me, they work in my practice uh, probably better than any other instrument. And especially even five core needs and mind styles works in marketing. It works in sales. It works in website development, all these different things. Those mind styles being concrete sequential abstract sequential, abstract random, and concrete random. The brainchild and the work of Dr. Anthony Gregoric, who I owe so much to for uh, his work. And so there you have it. We don't have too many more observations left. We'll record a a final episode uh, here pretty soon, maybe the final two episodes. But thanks again for tuning in to No Neutral Moments. I hope this has been a beneficial 33 minutes of your life. And just remember, there's no such thing as a neutral moment. God bless, and we'll see you soon.